Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Super excited for this week's episode for a bunch of reasons. But before we get to the episode, want to remind you guys about our brand new website, hazardground.com. Well, that's the same, but everything else about our website is flat out awesome. Please check it out. Uh, every former episode of the Hazard Ground is on the website. You can access it from there uh, multiple different ways. Just a brand new look, a brand new layout, making it much more user-friendly for all you guys out there to keep up with what we have going on on the show. Brand new logo as well. We hope you guys like that. I want to hear some feedback from you guys uh, on the logo and the website. Let us know what you like and what you don't like. Obviously, all this stuff is for you guys, so Love to hear what you guys think about a good, bad, or indifferent. One of the things on our website that you can do is you can send us a note. Please do so. Uh, there's a place for you guys to drop us a line, tell us what you think, and also give listener suggestions. And that's why this week's episode is is so special to us because it came from a listener, a, a Hazard Ground listener that said, hey, I'd like for you guys to tell this story. And boom, we went out, researched it, did it, found the individual, got him, and you're going to hear that story coming up here in just a few moments. Also on the website, that Amazon banner is there. Uh, you can find it on the sponsors page. You can find it on the main page. Just scroll down to the bottom. You click on that Amazon banner, do your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you spend, and we'll donate it right back to some of the amazing charities that we've featured here on the Hazard Ground. Follow us on all those social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. As I said, keep up with the show and everything that we have going on. And with all that said, let's get on to this week's incredible episode. Joining us this week, our first member of the non-American military, but his story details a battle in Iraq alongside of American forces in 2004. He is British Army Color Sergeant Brian Wood, MC, and he joins us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Brian, welcome. Thank you for being here. No, it's a pleasure, and thanks for... um invited me and being the first uk guest yeah very excited because look i mean uh the this war that we're in right now over the last 20 years now has gone well beyond the american military and we certainly have had a lot of help throughout the years especially in iraq with coalition forces uh with the british military being a big part of that your story is one of uh, a battle called Danny Boy uh, that many people may be familiar with, uh, depending on how much they know about uh, the war in Iraq. But this happened in southern Iraq in, in the middle of May in 2004. And for those who aren't familiar, the British forces occupied a lot of a lot of southern Iraq after the initial invasion. That was one of the main areas of focus where they worked throughout their entire time there. So um, let's kind of start. Um, talking about the Battle of Danny Boy and how long were you there before you guys got into contact? I mean, what was kind of your mission as you were told when you got there? Yeah, so our mission initially was um, it was a peacekeeping mission, but about a month prior to us going into country, we started to get a lot of intel uh, fed down to, to the chain of command and down to us that things have changed. Um, there was an uprising called by militia leaders and in within them sure meetings they basically broke ceasefire and McTurder al Sada, who was the main militia leader in mm-hmm. Alamara and kind of run the southern province, uh, he basically said all coalition 
we'll get smashed. So we're full on war fighting. So when we went into country, we'd done a fighting handover takeover, which we have never done before. I mean, that was the first real kinetic experience I had at that time. I was 23. I was a young commander, a lance corporal. And um, clearly at that age, I still had responsibilities. I still had had men and women under my command, mostly men, because in the British infantry, we don't have any women, only female medics. So there was there was a responsibility. And uh, I've never tested myself in combat. I knew that I was going into a kinetic uh, situation and operation. And, um, yeah, I was kind of – it was a mixture of emotions, really. I was eager to go. Um, you know, I'm very patriotic. I love my country. And we were deployed there uh, for a reason. So, you know, we believed in the mission commander mission statement. And we went out there. And, uh, like I said, it was a, it was a, a fighting handover takeover. Let me ask you, Brian, because, you know, you mentioned your love of country. Um, we hear that a lot from our guests, but that country is America. Your country, obviously, you know, the United Kingdom and, and, and Britain and everything else. Um, did you ever feel like you guys didn't need to be there or didn't belong there fighting a war that America had to deal with? I don't know if it's if it's a war that America had to deal with. Look, we're allies for a reason. We've been allies sure, for, yeah. for, for, um, for centuries. You know, you, you look, you can backdate our history. So... You know, I would never look at it as a, a single country's war. I think wherever the you know, America goes, British will go, and wherever British will go, the Americans will go. That's how close knit we are, right. and um, and that's the mutual respect. I know there's other allies that we work alongside, whether it be the Danish, the French, um, the Australian. You know, we've I've personally worked along some some very good uh, other nations. However, clearly American being our closest ally. So, and like I said, we've got a lot of history. So I wouldn't say it was a, a war that kind of um, America had to fight on its own because, like I said, I don't think there ever is anything that simultaneously Americans deal with. I think there's always, um, yeah, that collective role of responsibility. And, uh, yeah, we kind of go together as it stands. I got to tell you, like, it's so refreshing to hear that. Like, it almost makes me feel more patriotic knowing that uh, you have a brother that uh, even though we serve under a different flag and under a different military that is is willing to take up arms with you um it's just a refreshing you know it's refreshing to hear uh, there's a lot of yeah. dissension in the world i just it almost makes me feel more patriotic as an american no absolutely and let me tell you a quick story before we go into sure. uh, danny boy because i think it's important um my second tour of iraq uh, 2009 we're in a, a a Ford operating base, and um, there was it was controlled by a lot of waterways. So we had a SEAL team, an American SEAL team, join us, and they was only with us. Um, it, it was called Leaf Island. We were on a little island. It was uh, maintained by British, and uh, with that, we had kind of uh, small ribs and stuff that the engineers had, and we would go out on kind of water patrols and stuff like that. Anyway, we had a SEAL team uh, embedded with us for I think it was eight to ten days, and uh, I got to know them really well. And um, it was a good insight for, for the lads who, you know, I was in command of this time kind of being 30 men because at this point I was now a sergeant, so I had a lot of responsibility. And um, we were embedded with the SEAL team, really refreshing, really cool, professional, great guys. And uh, they were on our rations, so we looked after them and fed them. And uh, this commander, from they were, they were due to leave the island, and we said our farewells, and he said, look, listen, I'm going to bring you some decent food because we were eating off menu A, which was our British menu. And it was just the same rations every single day and 10 days. You know, it's quite a long time to live off the same sort of right. same, exactly the same menu, but we were living off that for weeks on end. But he said, look, listen, 
I'm going to get um, an air asset and drop you off some MREs. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Listen, this is a true story. This is a true story, right? So they go off. They get picked up um, on their helos. They go, and um, I think it's about maybe four days later, we had an unexpected helo inbound. And normally, clearly, I know when we do deliveries, refueling, etc. So I, I manage all of that. But this was not a UK inbound. So I was like kind of – because the HLS, the heli landing site, wasn't secure. It wasn't cleared. And um, anyway, this uh, this American heli come in with an underslung, the door gunner hung out, big thumbs up. They unclipped this um, underslung. It landed on our strip. We went out, collected it, and it was like loads of 10-man ration packs and stuff like that from the Americans. And, you know, what he did – and, you know, main, maintenance of morale or maintaining morale of forces is very key. And what he did there was a game changer for us. But what I did subsequently was when we went back, when we were relieved from that island, I went back into um, into the Bajor Air, uh, International Airport where we were. I went into the American sector and I tracked him down and I personally thanked him for what he did. That is so, awesome. Yeah, pretty cool story. That is an amazing – like, holy crap. Like, that is yeah. – I speak about it in my book. I've just we'll talk about that later. But I, I released the book um, three months ago, and it's gone pretty wild, and gone into the uh, Sunday Times bestselling list and stuff like that. But I talk about that in detail in, in my book, so it's a pretty cool allied story. It's just it, it's amazing, you know, what combat does um, and the bonds it creates. And we talk that we talk about all the time. And I think yeah. that goes for any country, for anybody who who takes up arms and fights for a cause. Uh, the people that you do it alongside with, regardless of their background, regardless of where they grew up and who they serve under and what the command they're under and all that. Uh, being side by side with somebody for any period of time in combat creates a bond that is unbreakable. And I think that's proof of uh, of it right there. That's an amazing story, Brian. Yeah, no, it's pretty cool, right? All right. So uh, from the happy times, let's get back to uh, what began as the Battle of Danny Boy. May 14th, 2004 was the date. And... Um, Tell me how that morning starts. Like, what is it a normal day for you guys? It was kind of a, a normal day, but we we were getting mortared like so frequently. It was horrendous uh, incoming at this at this period. I mean, you we had to go uh, in dribs and drabs to we call it the cookhouse to get food because we couldn't have many troops in one place at one time because of the threat. And we started to get some rockets coming into camp, and we were on five minutes' notice to move. So we were basically crashed out um, as a kind of an immediate uh, responder to find, fix, and destroy the mortar. We call it a mortar base plate. So basically, a mortar team from the militia had been firing us. We identified there was an identification on the firing point, and we were tasked in our armoured vehicles to go out there, find, fix, and engage. Um, so two vehicles went to do that, and another two held back and set up snap v, uh, VCPs, vehicle checkpoints, to basically um, stop any vehicles which look vulnerable or suspicious um, and pull them over and do a search from inside to out just to see if there's any trafficking of weapons. And that was my vehicle initially. So we were tasked to go and do a VCP, a vehicle checkpoint. So once a vehicle went firm, it was me as the ground commander to get out of the vehicle and kind of orchestrate the vehicle checkpoint, which I did. Uh, and I'm always in constant communication with the vehicle commander, and um, we, we were yeah we were carrying out this uh, these stopping these vehicles, checking the vehicles, and then all of a sudden on the radio, 
I get told to stop what I'm doing immediately and get back into the vehicle. There's a situation which just happened. So I did that. I stopped what I was doing on out in the um, out in the uh, sort of desert main main. There's a main supply route called Route Six, which mm-hmm. ran from Bajra to Baghdad, and it was a it was one route in, one route out, very vulnerable route. And we were on that route, so I got told to to stop what I was doing, get in the vehicle, and um, getting into the back of an armored vehicle. It's probably about uh, I would say touching forty one degrees so going into an armored vehicle with no aircon i mean it's just like an oven and i know that there will be the our u.s you know brothers out there ancestors who will, will can you know can sympathize with me that it's brutal heat yeah. and it is carnage heat and just for clarification so when you say 41 degrees you mean centigrade celsius yeah for, for the yeah, americans right. who, who don't do the conversion let's say about 25 degrees celsius is about 87 degrees fahrenheit so yeah. kick it up to you know you're, you're well over 110 degrees yeah, exactly. And hydration was a big thing. And it was initially a problem for us because we started having soldiers going down with heat exhaustion because right. there was not enough water intake. And uh, and obviously, we were drinking boiling water. So it's always harder to drink hot water because you're 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 clitching onto some cold, but you, you never get that. So you're having to really force it down you. And we had initially, we had some problems, but we kind of got used to that and, and understood the maintaining of, of, of our water discipline. Which we did, and uh, so I get into the back of the vehicle, put on the headset, which internally now I can speak to the driver, the gunner, and the commander. And my commander was a, a lad called Stick Broom. So I've asked him what's going on, and, and he said there's been an incident uh, at a checkpoint called Danny Boy, and there's been an ambush on uh, coalition forces. Which there was, it was actually a Scottish regiment, the Argyll and Southern Highlanders, had been involved in an ambush they'd taken two casualties one was a uh, a, a gunshot wound to the tricep which taken this tricep off and the other one was um, a fragmentation blast uh, from a grenade and someone was bleeding out from the inner uh, inner thigh so that was the only thing i got that was the only information that i was told i was like yeah roger that told the boys in the back which w- w- we we're going to do there was me me plus two other uh, dismounted troops in the back so in total three and uh, I told them what was going on, what we're going to do. And then, yeah, kind of off we went. And uh, on the way down this Route 6, which is a main supply route, I probably reckon we'll move them for about 15 minutes when, you know, I've been in some ambushes before because two weeks previous to Danny Boy, I was actually blowing up myself uh, and uh, was hit by two AT-4 Soviet Union Soviet Union missiles mm-hmm. and I experienced some carnage in the back of the vehicle there where I had to spend a number of time in a field hospital but so I, I'd been in an ambush before but this shook our vehicle to a grinding halt and our vehicle was a 33 ton um, suppressor you know so it's a it's a massive armored fighting vehicle so it really caused uh, you know a lot of confusion initially um, the gunner and commander were, were trying to understand where this kind of wave of firepower come from. They tried to identify they did, and then they started to return fire. And being in the back of this vehicle, there's a mixture of emotions because, one, previous to what I'm experiencing now, I've already been hit and I've already been, been a casualty from an ambush. So I knew the vehicle was penetrable. So I have a number of emotions going through my body at this at this point. Um, but I kind of managed that and uh, just kind of keep the boys in the in the back of the vehicle up to date what's going on. Uh, and then, and listeners will know, those who are military, it's very important um, that you give the commander 
and Gunner some time because the radio feed is going mad. They're under enough pressure as it is to get their job done. So without, they don't need the added, added pressure initially of me asking them straight away what's going on, what's happening, you know, who are you engaging? Sure. I know that. So I give them a kind of a cigar moment, a pause to free, let them deal with the initial engagement. And then I started asking the questions. Stick, what's happening? We've been hit. We've been in ambush. They look like they're in dug in trench positions, uh, zigzag type positions. And I was like, okay, how, what's the strength? 15 to 20 militia fighters. Uh, what weapon systems? AK 47s. The traditional. Middle Eastern weapon systems, Dushkas, right, right. AK-47, RPGs, and so on and so forth. I was like, yeah, okay, roger that. And he told me to wait. He said, wait out. And then the the uh, Raden, which is a 30-millimeter cannon and a 7.62 chain gun, was smashing this position. Wow. But so I was asking him, uh, you know, I asked him what I needed to know. I then relayed it to the guys in the back because they can't hear this conversation the internally because there's only me what can speak to the commander and gunner. So I verbally brief what's going on to the boys in the back who are looking at me now. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, he then said, we're having no effect. The vehicle is having no effect because they're just getting down and they're getting up at a different position and they're smashing us again. He said, um, so listen, Woody, prepare you and your men to get out of this vehicle and launch a full frontal uh, assault on this dug-in enemy stronghold. So initially, I was like, that's pretty powerful stuff to be told. <laughs> yeah. So I asked him actually to say it again, to repeat the word of command, because it's not very often you get told to do that. So I asked him, I said, "Stick, just say that again. He said, look, we're having no, we're having no joy. We need boots on the ground. And I want you to kind of prepare you and your men to get out. We'll fire you in. We'll give you fire support. But I want you to go and launch a full assault on that trench. So I was like, okay, so this is where we talk about fear. And I don't care who you are. I don't care how macho you think you are. In that situation, fear starts to creep in. And I'm only human. So it started to creep in to, to where I was in my thought process. But it's how you manage that fear. And how I managed it was I used it to actually drag me out of the vehicle to, to, make, to make me lead by example, so to be the first out of that vehicle. So I said to him, okay, roger that. Lick me two minutes to brief the guys. So I told the boys in the back what's going to happen. Me plus them two are going to get out of this vehicle. We're going to try and initially get to a, a, bit, a bit of cover that, so at least we can identify where the firing point was because at this point I'm in the back of this vehicle. It's dark. It's boiling. There's only one little glass window out the back of the armoured door and you can't see anything out of it because of sand, grit, condensation. There's nothing you can see out of it. So I needed to get to a, a position where I would get out and I'd, at least I'll give myself a chance to go forward. So I told that to the guys, told that to my commander, and he said, yep, yeah, once a door opens to your 10 o'clock, there's a prominent dried-out wadi-type ditch irrigation. Go to that and then you will then watch my tracers because we had a four bit, we call it a one in four bit. So every fourth round from the chain gun. Yep, we have the same up. thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because you can have a two bit or four bit. So four bit is what we have in the Warriors. And um, so I said to Stick, my commander, you know, we're good to go. And uh, he said, right, mini HR. So he was going to give us a five second countdown. And then the door, because the door is on a, and I, um, on a hydraulic system. So when you press it in the back and it hydraulically opens the door, because it's an armored door, it's just, it's so heavy, you can't just open it like a car door. So it was, you know, five, 
four, three, and on three, the whole vehicle, you know, the vehicle just went so loud, so much fire support. The door opened, and then what was muffled in the back came into a deafening, deafening um, cascade of violence. And um, I just remember squinting because it was so bright out there as well. But once the door opened fully, I, I could see straight away where I needed to go. I knew where that ditch was. So I just ran hard, fast and aggressive to the ditch. Um, I got down in my in the prone position on my front. I looked to my left-hand side and I saw the bravest of two other soldiers following me. We then got onto the ditch. We lined up in a three. And I told the boys to check themselves because you know what it's like, full of adrenaline. You know, it's like an out-of-body experience. Unless you were hit stone cold outright and killed, you wouldn't know if you were being hit at the time. Right. So I told us to check our, our legs and I'll make sure that there's, there's no visible signs of being hit. And then we had a pause, calm yourself moment. So we call it a chill cigar, like I said, a cigar moment where you analyse what is actually going on in this situation because there is another vehicle, another warrior, armoured fighting vehicle had now turned up and it's now also suppressing over our heads into this, this trench. So, um, yeah, I kind of took a pause, two, three, sucked in a bit of um, Iraqi desert and then uh, just trying to kind of, then I need to go and have a look where actually the enemy were. So I don't like a a meerkat moment, so I shuffled forward and peered over the top, and I could see the tracer smashing the position, and I knew exactly where it was. And uh, it was about 120 metres to our front. And then I kind of just done a bit of an, we call it a combat estimate. So can we go right flanking, or can we go left flanking, or do we just go straight up the killing area, up the middle, and just hope for the best? And then on the right flanking, I wasn't happy because I didn't know about flank interference. It, it didn't look, it didn't feel safe going over to the right hand flank the left hand flank was too close to our vehicles and, and it, you know blue on blue was a, a was a big thing for me so i didn't want to risk um having fracture site involved so i just said look the best thing to do is just with great british core values grit courage and determination we get up from behind this we go over the top like our ancestors did or like our forebears did back in the second world war and we just go for it and we just hope for the best so that was a decision that we made. But when I was talking to the lads, another two British soldiers joined us randomly from a, the other vehicle that had just turned up. So now there's five of us on the ground. So that's pretty much a section now. So, yeah, I've got a little bit more um, belief now because there's five of us. So I spoke to the other commander because there was another commander on the ground at this point. So I had a conflag with him. He agreed with me that we were going to go up and just go straight down the middle. But we were going to work in a three and a two. So we always have one foot on the ground. We call it a leapfrogging effect. So once we sure. break that cover... We do, we do the same thing. Exactly. One foot on the ground, and we just go hard, fast, and aggressive straight into this main position. So, yeah, we agreed. Radioed into the vehicles. Uh, then, my, then my radio went down, so it was like mostly like hand signals and stuff. And, um, yeah, the time had come. So three of us, me... A Fijian called uh, Tatawaka and Rushi, another lad of another lad in my team, went up over the top. And as soon as we broke cover, that was it. We were in a two-way firing range. It was that's it, full-on kinetic violence at each other. And um, I know in in the British military, we we say that effective enemy fire is when rounds and ammunition is in and around your feet or zipping past your ears. And this is kind of how it was. Now it was like bees were buzzing everywhere. Right, and uh, we just went first bound. Then we were suppressing, we were engaging, and then the second bound, the other two joined us, went forward of us in, in a leapfrog effect. They started to engage. We got closer. 
we didn't hear Matt. So what we said was, if anyone gets hit, we continue the main effort, which was to close and destroy that main position. That was the main effort. So we just keep going, even if it's one person left, you just keep going and try and do as much damage to this enemy force as we can before you know we go back and account for our own casualties. Because there was only a small number on the ground, that's what we had to do. And I knew there was 15 to 20 militia, so we were quite heavily outnumbered. But we're getting closer, and we got closer. Now we're 50 metres away, and we're having some effect. I can start seeing now bodies in and around the trench positions that had been hit, militia fighters who are dead. You know, I started to get like 60 metres away. Now I can start to see some militia fighters now withdrawing from that position. So we've got the upper hand. We've got the foothold now on this ground, on this battleground. And we got closer, you know, maybe about about 80 metres away. And uh, we were just about to go into, we call it a pairs pairs. So we just roll it up. You roll straight into that position and clear it. And um, as we were about 90 metres away, you can hear them vocally, um, you know, shouting and, and communicating with each other. And uh, we were just about to go in and kind of finish off uh, what they started. And um, all of a sudden, with a split second, they threw their weapons down and surrendered. And, you know, I, like I say, you know, I, do, I do a few kind of speaking engagements. And uh, I say to the audience, when you're fighting for everything, when you're fighting for your life, your, your, your comrades, you know, you, you are in such a possessed state of mind that I do understand how people do get it wrong sometimes because you're just kind of, you're fighting for everything, you're fighting to live. So they threw their weapons down, they surrendered. All of a sudden, with a split second, we now have to switch fire and we now have to stop firing and take these as POWs because they've surrendered. We've got rules of engagement, lawfare that we have to adhere to. So it was it was confusing initially. I mean, I was like twenty three, I've never done this before. This is close and personal. This is a a, a close quarter, you know, situations, you know, where it's hand to hand fighting now. And um I kind of assessed what was going on. We were communicating with each other. There was weapons everywhere, so we were trying to get them out of reach of the militia because I didn't want anyone to be a chancer and kind of take an opportunist and spray us. Sure, yeah. Trying to sort this out. There's bodies at this point everywhere, but they'd been hit by 30 mil, so you can only imagine. There was not a lot left of them. There was was pieces everywhere. And I'm trying to deal with all of this. And um, we managed to kind of segregate. We prioritised, you know, um, the POWs. We... We'd done as best as what we could on the, on, on the ground that day because, you know, we didn't have any prisoner of war um, sort of kit that we used. So we didn't have, like, the proper um, goggles. We just kind of had to bastardize things and kind of improvise, which was shemags and their fighting kit we put around their eyes and stuff like that. And then as we were doing this, we had a secondary engagement. So now I was in this trench with enemy dead POWs, weaponry everywhere it was carnage like in the newspapers in the british newspapers and in on tv it was a textbook british attack and it was far from it there was confusion there was um it there was just it was a bit carnage if i'm honest but we still maintained you know a, a clear purpose on the situation which was happening um but it wasn't textbook because we'd never done this before I mean, but we're still alive, so we've done something right. And uh, we managed to kind of sort all this out. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, my my company sergeant major turns up. 
And as you know, he's a, an incredible, um, also most art majors are in, incredible leaders of men. They are inspirational. They are, you know, just incredible leaders. So my art major turned up and was like, right, Willie, just give me a quick back brief on what's happened. So I told him we were engaged, we were ambushed, we went forward of now taking this position. Um, and, and he asked me a massive integrity question. And he asked me if the battlefield was clear. And for a split second, I actually wanted to say it was clear because I was lucky to be alive at this point. So lucky to be alive. And, um, but because of my values and what I stand for, I said, sir, it's not clear. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I've seen militia fighters fall back. So the battle space isn't clear. And he said to me, right, put a fresh magazine on. You're going to come with me for a clearance patrol. And I was like, okay, Roger that. Put a fresh magazine on. And me and the company sergeant major went forward and within 80 meters we would just you know come up with uh you know into more close quarter fighting again but this was like about two meters away so we were proper in amongst it now and um he he initially i seen a flicker from the right hand side i shouted target right and he put three to four rounds in his you know sort of chest cavity area uh and he went down he went move as i've moved another militia from the left hand side which is my side basically come up from about a metre and a half away. I could probably reach out and grab him, and I've just taken a knee, put you know five or six rounds into his throat area. He's gone down coughing and, 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 and choking and, and spluttering. We've moved forward, and um, I've actually said to my – a bit of moral courage, I said to my sergeant major, you know, sir, we're really vulnerable. We've come now 100 and so on metres from the main position. We, we need reinforcements. We need to go back. And he said, I agree. And on the way back, we bounded back. And then on the left-hand side of my kind of visual, provisional visual, I see another flicker. And as I've looked, it was another two fighters which stood up. But then they threw their weapons down and surrendered. So I was like, shit. So I brought my weapon to bear. We then had to then go through the arrest and restraint. But on the approach, when I was approaching these two militia fighters now, I recognized one. I thought, I recognize you. And what it was, he was in my, um, we mentored him as a, my platoon mentored him because obviously we go out to these countries and we we need, we need to try and stabilize right. that country we, we we mentor we show them you know a few bits and bobs of what we do and how we operate so he was actually um an iraqi policeman who was in my syndicate who i was basically trying to nurture and he's gonna wow. and turn against yeah he's turned against me what did that the, do for you in that moment were you disappointed were you shocked yeah, were you hurt no nah, of course i was very shocked and angry um but he had no remorse he looked at me and just smirked and i was like fucking hell you know you just don't it's just it's hard enough you know right. it's hard enough like fighting in foreign fields but then to to have someone who you think is with you switch against you it's just it's, it's yeah it's it's um it's a bit of graft but i just had to put that to the back of my mind and we arrested them we took them back to the main position and at this point there is so many vehicles, British vehicles now on, on site. There is a Challenger 2 battle tank. There is other warrior fighting vehicles. There's a lot of moving and shaking now. And I've gone back to where the main position was, and that was the first time that I sat down on the bank to drink some water. And I talked through this within 15 to 20 minutes, but actually took three hours to, to clear that whole battle space. Wow. So it was a, it was a lot of fighting going on. There was... Um, yeah, it was a lot of confusion, a lot of fighting, and yeah, there's a lot of you know, trauma on the battlefield. Brian, take me back to that decision. You're at the firing point. It's the three of you, and then two more show up. You make the decision to 
to get up and charge over the hill, so to speak, right in the face of the enemy. Yeah. If you don't do that, how do you envision the rest of that battle goes? It's a, it's a good question, you know, because I don't know how the rest of that battle would have went. You I know? mean, do you but, feel like you guys would have been overrun or did you still have a chance from if you stayed where you were? Hey, listen, we've, we've always got a chance. Right. You're always in with a chance. It, it doesn't matter who you are or what you're doing. You know, if you believe in yourself and in your skills, there's a chance. And if you, you know, start to to kind of move away from that, in, in my opinion, it's kind of poor leadership because you don't go into a deal kind of half-cocked. You go into a deal with full belief that you can achieve the unachievable. A lot of people said it was the unachievable. It's not the unachievable because we achieved it. And not for one moment did I think it was unachievable. I thought we're in with a chance, and sometimes big shots come in. So therefore, you lead, and you have the courage and the grit and the determination, what all of our values stand for, and you go. And if you do you know what? If you die, you've died trying. And that's a big thing for me. So it was like, we're, we're going to go, and we're going to give it our best shot. And if people are hit, we'll go back for them when this is positions clear. That's how it was. And, um, you know, it's, it's difficult to kind of look back and say, you know, if we didn't go sure, over the yeah. top or it's big, but, you know, we're always going to go over the top. We're always going to go. So, yeah. There were reports that, you know, bayonets were used. And the only reason I bring that up is because yeah. like, we have bayonets too. And the general thought process is if you have to use this thing, you know your world is totally screwed. Like, you know, this, <laughs> yeah. is, this, this isn't the last line of defense you're bayonet. This is the I'm going down and it's not going to end well sort of, yeah. uh, you know, tip of the spear, if you will. I, I mean, I don't know if you had to use them personally, but, um, you know, when you're in that kind of close quarters – with somebody, uh, I, I can't imagine it's it, it, it's different than just pulling the trigger. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> when I was in the courtroom, and we'll talk about the aftermath sure, yeah, in, yeah. in a bit, but they really focused on bayonets, and and but this was frustrating for me when I was in the courtroom because these people who were questioning my tactics and questioned British military tactics, you know, bayonets are fixed because it's a standard operating procedure. If you're going to close quarters, you fix a bayonet. That is what it says in, the, in lawfare. That's what it says in warfare. That is an infantry standard drill. I said, you're bringing this up because you don't understand this. You, don't, you, don't, you haven't brought this day into context. You don't know what's going around. So you don't know, you don't know how we operate because you're asking these questions. And I, like I said, you know, these, these, this was just a basic drill. It was, we're going in, we're going to conduct, conduct trench warfighting, therefore, bayonets are fixed. And I personally couldn't fix a bayonet because I had a, a weapon system which wouldn't allow that because I had an underslung grenade launcher. So when, you, when we, as British weapon right, systems, yeah. we can't fix a bayonet onto an underslung because there's not enough gap. We have the but, same thing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So other, other people in that section, of course they did, but I didn't micromanage that. That's a drill. They, they carried out because they get taught and it's like a drill. So, you know, did, did they use it? I, I, you know, I was so fixated what was going on, you know, that you know, I didn't really concentrate. But I'm sure that, you know, bayonets were used as like, they, they cross-examined me on another commander using the bayonet. And I said to them in the courtroom, good, they should be using that bayonet because it's a drill. Because he would have used the extreme force that he needs to till that target is eliminated and that threat is done with. So if he's used his bayonet, he's either ran out of ammunition or he's had a stoppage. And the secondary rule is you engage bayonet and you put it into the guts and he's down so if he's done that then it's good drills so 
we I sat down for a drink of water and then uh because it was such a big pre planned attack on coalition forces, our brigade, HQ, thought that the main militia leader was either now being killed because there was twenty killed that day and nine taken as POWs. So twenty nine. It's pretty punchy firepower from the from, from the enemy. Um so they believed that the main militia leader, Tadra Al Sada, was either dead or he was now a POW. So a crazy order was made by Brigade HQ, and that was now we have to go back and pick up these dead bodies and load them onto our vehicles and then take them back to our main operating base, so our FOB. And I was like, shit, that just doesn't happen. What are we doing that for? That We just leave them in situ and we should be going. So, but as a young, young commander, you do what you're told. And, you know, we had to then go and back and pick these bodies. And I tell you what, right. And I'm not too, I'm, I'm not too scared to say this, that it's a demand in the human headspace, taking a, taking another human's life, enemy forces or whatever. But when it's close and personal and you hear them last gasp in their token, it's, it's, it's a demand in the headspace sure, to, see yeah, them, yeah. to see them go down and how they did go down when it's close and personal to then have it to go back and pick this young 17-year-old fighter up who is liveless and carry him onto a vehicle and also recovering bodies that were all over the place, arms missing, guts hanging out. It was horrendous. That it, it ended people, to be honest. It really did have that significant effect on, on, the, on the headspace, but it was, it was horrendous. So anyway, we spent the next 40 minutes recovering these fighters, um, and load them onto these uh, the back of our armoured vehicles now, and we had kind of two vehicles. We loaded the bodies into these vehicles, and then we made our way back to um, Abenaji, which was north. We were we were in Abenaji, um, which was north in Basra, and it was about I think it's about an hour away from Baghdad. So we were kind of a lot north than than Basra, and um, we got back to our our fob or our our camp, and all the floodlights were on. And I remember getting back. And the regimental sergeant major, his provost uh, team were there. And I got got out of the vehicle, said, look, what do you want to do with this vehicle? My vehicle's got like quite a lot of dead bodies in there. He said, right, the doctor is up at the RAP, the regimental aid post. Can you ground command the vehicle to there? He's waiting for you to then unload the bodies and uh, put them onto the body bags. So I was like, okay, now at this point, it's dark. Um the smells which were coming from the vehicles was gopping. I mean, you can only imagine, you know, f- feces, uh, you know, g- uh, blood, guts. The, right, the smell yeah. was horrendous. It was just horrendous. Anyway, we, I got to where the doctor was. The doctor had all the body bags laid out. He said, right, Woody, what you need to do is get the back door open and then lay the bodies out. And I was like, okay, no worries. So I said to the lads, right, get the back door open. And like I said before, the back door is on a hydraulic system. So when you press the button the hydraulics push it open for you. So when the lads went to press it open, nothing happened. And those who you know, the only other way to open this door is actually you have to do it manually. So you crawl through the tunnel, the turret, go through the back and actually hand crank this door open. So all of a someone's got to do this now. And this bo- this this vehicle now has got all these bodies in the back and no one wants to do it. So what we've done, we, we played paper, scissors, stones, Right on who would who whoever lost would have to do this, and it was horrendous. Anyway, the driver had lost, so he put a shamag around his face, and uh, he had a head torch on, 
and you, you can't even imagine the state of this stuff that was in the back of these vehicles all stacked up on top of each other but anyway climbing through this vehicle and he starts to hand crank this door open and we're talking to him we're trying to reassure him everything's okay keep going keep working hard and I could hear him moaning and stuff about it. And then all of a sudden, the door was kind of wide enough open to to go through it sideways, to squeeze through it sideways. And I could hear shouting and screaming in the back of this vehicle. So I was like, what's going on there? And then next thing I see um, the driver squeeze out and then just sprinting, shouting, he's alive, he's alive. And I was like, who's he's alive? So I've looked into the back of the vehicle and he wasn't alive because his half of his head was missing, but he was sat up bolt right with his eyes open and it must have just freaked him out in the back and he's like ran. But that that um maybe thirty second incident ruined that driver's career. It ended his career in an instance and he's still suffering from that traumatic experience now. Wow. So um yeah, it was kind of a, a crazy day and then we were full of our kit was covered in blood and then we had to go through like hepatitis checks and stuff like that and then we had to take our kit off and get burnt and get incinerated and um it was just that that tour kind of carried on it was a very famous um tour for for violence and and, and kinetic engagements but sure yeah obviously getting home and then years later these crazy allegations which kicked up well yeah let's let's get to that because it was that was 2004 so five years later over five years five and a half years later in 2009 yeah. uh you guys find out um from the british british minister of state for the armed forces that there was an investigation called the al sweetie inquiry yeah. so w- where are you when you first hear this and what are you told so i was actually on my commando course to earn my green beret so I was down at Limpston on a nine-week course, um, and it's those of you know, you know, earning your green beret is quite a hard course. So it's an arduous course, and I got back. I was on week five. I got back to to where I was um, staying in in the lines, and I had about twenty missed calls from from my wife. So I, I thought it was initially it was something happened to the kids, my kids. So I phoned up and said what was happening, and she said, "Look, there's a letter here um, for you," and I was like, "Okay." And she said that um, it states that there's going to be a, a public inquiry and the allegations that you're up against are murder, mutilation and mistreatment. And I said to Lucy, I said, hey, listen, is that definitely got my name on it? And she said, yeah, it's from the Battle of Danny Boy. And then I kind of thought, how? So I, I said, look, don't worry. It would be OK. Let me just speak to my regiment. So I hung up on her, phoned my regiment, spoke to my uh, battalion 2IC, second in command, and he said, yeah, Woody, it's um, it's happening. And I just couldn't get my head around it. One, I was angry because the way I found out, my wife opening this letter. Sure, so yeah, no, one, yeah. no one phoned me. No one actually came down because I was serving in Germany at this point. So we were posted in Germany. And I was, I was frustrated that no one came over and actually spoke to me face-to-face because I, I think that's good leadership. But, you know, some people make some some poor decisions and, you know, I kind of can forgive that. But I was a bit angry on the way I kind of found out. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I didn't think they were going to get any traction, let alone it going out into the public domain. And then that was it. It was a game-changer for me and for my fellow soldiers on the ground that day. Now – what the Iraq historic abuse team? Where mm-hmm. did that come from? It's, it's, you know what? I'm not even the subject matter expert on it now because I was fighting my own 
my own personal battle to kind of clear my name and right. and um you know the thing is right after when i got home from that that tour later on about six months later i found out that i'd been awarded the military cross and then i went to buckingham palace then the, the queen you know presented me with the this military cross so then all of a sudden you know i've been i've been um given this medal which is one of the highest medals of valor and and gallantry to all of a sudden now fighting to clear my name and i thought how has this even come about this is crazy and yeah there's a there's a there's basically a team which acts on behalf of iraqi participants and they basically go and analyze um what these allegations are and they either say they've got any they've got credible they've got credible evidence that something happened or they haven't and you know it just just got it just got traction and the government ended up paying money to there was a there's a famous lawyer in the UK and his name's called Phil Shiner and he was gold standard at one point he was um the kind of celebrity lawyer everyone wanted on human rights he was an award winner and he was at one point very very good so he then come up with these allegations on on during the battle of danny boy that there were innocent farmers we captured them we took them back to camp we lined them up on a longer line and executed them massacred them and i thought how has that even got traction how there's no evidence i mean ha, ha, but it did and so what was happening was phil shiner was paying bungs of money to iraqi agents in iraq meeting them in pakistan and then hand delivering them these allegations he was then coming back and then he would say, I've got evidence that this happened during the Battle of Danny Boy. Ill treatment was done and these were murdered and they were executed and they were so on and so forth. And I was like, this is just crazy stuff. But it got traction. And then all of a sudden, there was a big program on in, in the UK called Panorama on whose orders. And then that's it. It's all over the press. And then I'm getting phone calls. I'm getting text messages from family, friends, asking me what they've seen. Is is it true? Because everyone knew that I was involved in the Battle of Danny Boy. I was decorated by the right, Queen right. for it. So I was then getting bombarded. And all of a sudden, I'm now having to justify my actions. And it was it's a nightmare. It was carnage. And um, it took another five years to actually get until I was in the dock. So you know, from the Battle of Danny Boy to where we are now, it's 10 years until I was actually in the dock getting cross-examined. It was just, I was let down as well because not one person from the Ministry of Defence or from the government reached out to me and said, listen, what do you need? What support do you need? Um, Do you need a ring of steel? Because it's an eye for an eye. But now my name was all in the public domain with with other soldiers from the regiment. I thought they were going to come for a hit on my house. I honestly had that in my head and I was possessed by it. So I was like triple locking my doors. I was doing five and 20 meter checkouts on the front. I was looking for wires. I was just, I was so possessed that they were going to come for a hit because three weeks prior to this, um, there was a raid in a London flat. And the other commander was on the, the ground with me during the Battle of Danny Boy. His um, address and information was found in a terrorist pack. And he got taken into hiding, into a safe house. And then I'm like, shit, they're coming for me now. It was just, it was a nightmare. It was the worst, you know, it was just a, the worst decade of my life. Nightmare. And I never got one text message, phone call, email 
from anyone, any ministers. Um, yeah, it was just it was just betrayal, and that's what my book is. My book is called Double Crossed because you know, and it's a code of honour, a complete betrayal because I honoured my allegiance, right, I fought right. so hard for my country. That's my code of honour, and then when when I was then fighting another battle on on home soil i was now in the uk fighting a harder battle than danny boy because i never had the tools i wasn't trained for all this these allegations and solicitor meetings and looking through statements and highlighting statements i wasn't i didn't know what was going on it made me go like slightly crazy so for those listening um it it took 10 years but in late december of 2014 the aswadi inquiry which cost uh, millions and millions and millions of dollars. 31, yeah, yeah, 31 million pounds. Yeah, so um, it returned its findings that no prisoners were murdered, no bodies had been mutilated. Uh, there was no evidence to the effect that detainees were deliberately um, hurt or uh, also much that the inquiry found allegations made by Iraqis and their lawyers were based on deliberate lies, uh, speculation, uh, yeah. hostility. Furthermore, Phil Shiner, the lawyer that you had mentioned earlier, also admitted guilt yeah, um, twelve and on twelve accounts. Yes, uh, so yeah. uh, that didn't actually happen until 2016. But so yeah. you guys were exonerated and cleared of. Well, you were exonerated and cleared. Was yeah. anybody anybody else from your unit involved in this, or was it just you? No, there was everyone who was involved in Danny. Okay, Boy. everybody was. Okay, yeah. So when you guys finally get exonerated, I mean, I I know you feel relief, but I mean, what's are you happy? Do, do, can you even you know? Feel like you got any sort of vindication out of it? Uh, yeah, for me, it was too little, too late. I mean, I was angry. I was, I was just pleased that it was all done with because we, as a family, had gone through. It, it tested my relationship to the extreme breaking point. All of this, and I said that on my interview on TV. You know, he doesn't know how much damage he caused. And he fueled post-traumatic stress for my other soldiers. He ended marriages, you know, he ended careers, mine included, you know, all, all. So did the, love, all did the British the army money. kick you out or no? Did they get rid of you? No, it was, no, for me, it was a straw that broke the it just Okay. It made me. you decide to walk away. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Did anybody else um, get kicked out or anybody else, you know, have to deal with any repercussions from the British military? Uh, Everyone who was with me that day is is out. Okay. Um, do you, do you still get to keep your military cross? They didn't take it away from you or anything, did they? No, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I speak about that in the book about you know the questions that I asked my solicitor of, above everything else was what what will they strip me of my decoration? And um, like Winston Churchill once said famously, "A medal shines, but it also casts a shadow," and that's what it was on this. Now, I mean, I was like I said. I was decorated for one of the highest um, valor medals to then all of a sudden have a massive shadow on it because these allegations for so many years. And um, it's only now that I've really started to talk about the medal again, which is a shame, really. Do you have any regrets? Um, I don't have any regrets. You know, when my military career was one of the best, best years of my life, it really was, um, you know, is there anything you think you could have done differently to avoid this? No, definitely okay. not. All right. No. And I wasn't insinuating that you could have. I just was, you know, sometimes with, with distance and reflection, you look at it and you go, well, if I had probably done this, it might have been viewed differently kind of deal. Nah, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a tactician now because I, I, I served 
furthermore 11 years and went to another tour of Iraq and, and Afghanistan and, and I obviously went on different battle course command courses so uh, don't forget I was only 23 years old and a young Lance Corporal still learning my trade all of a sudden getting this word of command or told to me to what I'm going to having to do and it was kind of against a big stack of odds but we achieved that so actually I wouldn't change anything look we were hit and we were hit hard but we hit them harder and that's the end state. When you say you're willing to talk about your military cross now, when you look at it and you see it, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? I'm still proud, you know. I am. I'm, I'm, I'm still still proud to, to wear it at certain occasions, whether it be Remembrance Sunday or whether it be a charity event. Um, look, I'm, 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 I'm proud because I, I know what happened that day and no one can take anything away. Yes, it's been, you know, a, a long road, and for a long time, it was in a, a in a pouch in my sock drawer in my room. Believe it or not, my pants and socks drawer. It was just wow. under there and just stacked away. Yeah. So, um, but when I look at it now, I mean, it's it was an incredible day. One of the other than my kids being born, it was the best day of my life. You know, taking my my mum and dad and my wife to Buckingham Palace to experience, you know, an incredible achievement. Uh, you can't, you know, no one can take that away from me, but it was, yeah, it was a journey. Brian, it's an incredible story. Um, you know, I, it, it is bittersweet. I, I, I think you would agree that there is so many highs, but there was a big low for this whole thing. And, you yeah. know, I just hope that you're in a place now with it where you are comfortable and you have been able to, reconcile uh, everything in your own mind that you live in peace each day yeah no absolutely i mean we're the best we've ever been as a family and do you know what it's probably made us i know it's a bit of a cliche saying but it's probably made us stronger and um and that's the good what comes out of it look i always try and look on the growth side of things you know a lot of people are fixed with post-traumatic stress but i kind of look at the post-traumatic situation how we can inspire because i think is very important because we, as a breed of military, have got so many assets, so many attributes, which can be really helpful to people who are struggling or who are in business looking to make a big decision but don't want to take that risk. And actually, it's what we've done for such a long time. So let's go into that boardroom and let's talk about risk versus reward. Let's talk about decision making. Let's talk about in a split second. And if you get it wrong, it's life. So if you get it wrong, it's money. But you can recoup money. You can't recoup life. So let's have a look at that risk versus reward factor. And actually, let's analyze it before we then commit. You know, cigar moment is so important that when you're under so much pressure, you're, you're still entitled to your thought process moment. It doesn't matter how carnage the situation is. You as a commander are still entitled to that decision-making process. And um, and that's what I kind of do now. I'm, I'm Yeah, I'm kind of, I've got a clear vision of where I'm at at the moment and um, the family's really good, so... It's all, it's all good. Well, that's fantastic to hear. Again, the book is called Double Crossed, A Code of Honor, A Complete Betrayal, and Brian Wood is the author. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I wish you nothing but the best. Uh, I look upon you uh, certainly with, with respectful and, and adoring eyes from the standpoint of you did right by your country, you did right by your fellow soldiers, and certainly all the other stuff that came and gone uh, is just part of the trials and tribulations you went through. But you came out on top, Brian, and certainly, uh, you know, Proud to meet you, proud to know you, and certainly thank you for your service, man. Oh, thank you. It's likewise. It's mutual respect. You know, you, you know this score. Without me blabbing on about it, it's, it's <laughs> massively mutual, and you know, and long may it continue. 
and thank you for what you've done as well and, and for your service. It's incredible. And, and for, for documenting these stories because it's really important that people, you know, f- listen to not just mine but to the, the other people that you've had on your show. It's so important that we, we get people's stories told because we can't just sit in silence. They have to listen and have to hear these incredible stories. Color Sergeant Brian Wood, and I will proudly add the MC for Military Spouse <laughs> at the end. Thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground. No, I appreciate it, man. Thank you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.